0: Do you believe in miracles? Remember that saying from the 1980 Olympics? It came from the announcer, Al Michaels, who was commenting on the hockey game between the USA and USSR. Team USA in February of 1980 was made up of amateurs and collegians. They had formed a pretty amazing team, but they were just young boys, basically, playing against the Soviet Union's national team. Now get this. The Soviets had won the gold medal in hockey six of the previous seven Olympics. This was truly David against Goliath. And in the waning moments of that game, as it appeared that USA would win 4 to 3, Al Michaels says, "Do you believe in miracles?" and then pandemonium exploded as we won the game. It was called by Sports Illustrated the greatest sports moment in the 20th century. Greatest sports moment. It was called the Miracle on Ice, and in the year 2004, was made into a movie, which perhaps some of you saw with Kurt Russell playing the role of the manager, Herb Brooks. It was quite a story. Do you believe in miracles? But that popular question, that popular question, came to us in the relatively unimportant world of sports. But it begs the question: Do you believe in real-life miracles? The Pew Research Group did a study back in the year 2008, and they uncovered the fact that 79% of adults believe in miracles, the supernatural taking place. A miracle is defined by the American Heritage Dictionary as an event that appears inexplicable by the laws of nature, and so it is held to be supernatural. 79% of adults say they believe in miracles. Among evangelicals, 88% say they believe in miracles, which bums me out that there are 12% of people who say they're evangelicals and don't believe in miracles. You see, there is growing, I think, a substantial amount, especially of young people who are attracted by the new atheists, and the whole attitude of secularism and skepticism And they embrace what was written long ago by David Hume in 1748. He wrote the classic classic objection to miracles by simply saying, Miracles can't exist because they go against the proven laws of nature. You've got these laws of nature. They're well-founded. And they've been examined throughout history. And these laws cannot be violated. Violated. And I've got one answer to that kind of reasoning. God. Right? I mean, if you believe in God, you say, I don't. But if you did, would you not believe in a God who could somehow intervene in the normal course of affairs and do something unusual? Of course. That's only reasonable. So you have to say there's no possibility of God. You have to believe in a closed system ordered by the laws of nature without a God that that can be changed. Those laws cannot be changed. There's no God that can break in and do something different. Well, I think all of human history shows us that such a belief like that takes more faith than faith. And most people in our society believe in miracles and believe in a supernatural being. And that's good because the Christmas story is all about miracles. The next few sermons, we're tying them together under this theme of Christmas miracles. We're going to talk about some of the miracles that take place and some of the miracles that you and I are very familiar with. And ask the question, do we really? believe in these miracles. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. The Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 1. And I want to begin reading with the 18th verse. Now the first 17 verses show that Jesus, the Messiah, comes from the line of David and that uh, Joseph, is also the line of David, so he has the right to be a foster father for Jesus. We read in verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. So now I'm gonna tell you the story of a miracle, of multiple miracles. This is how it came about. His mother, that is the mother of Jesus, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. The word pledged or betrothed, Uh, in the Jewish setting, was a a one-year affair. The engagement meant that you were actually married, although you didn't come together physically to live or to consummate the marriage. You were considered to be husband and wife for that year. And the only way that you could break off that engagement, that betrothal, was through a public divorce. And so while they were pledged to be married, it was during that period of time, before they came together, Mary was found to be with child. Stop right there. The Greek word found here is the word eurisko, where we get the English word eureka, taken right from the Greek. Now when I say in the English eureka, it means I've discovered something. It's usually a triumphant exclamation of, of joy. Eureka! I've discovered the cure for a disease, whatever it might be. Well, this Eureka was indeed an amazing discovery, but not one of triumph, one of horrible sadness. Imagine Joseph discovering that Mary was pregnant. Now, he didn't know that the child was from the Holy Spirit. And we don't know exactly how he knew, but the word seems to imply that he discovered it. She didn't tell him. Maybe it was when Mary went down to visit Elizabeth that word got back and Joseph heard that Mary was pregnant. And I'm sure he hit the first guy who told him that. How could my pure one, the one that I know, the one that I trust, the one that I've committed my life to, I know she's loyal, I know she's pure, how could she do that? It's unthinkable or maybe it's when she came back from being down with Elizabeth and she was already showing the pregnancy and she got off the caravan cart and Joseph saw Mary in her form and couldn't believe his eyes he discovered that she was with child verse 19 because Joseph her husband was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace stop right there I have to acknowledge that part, an important part of righteousness is compassion. Our God is a holy God, and He is perfectly righteous, but He is full of compassion. Compassion doesn't mean to suspend His righteous laws. But righteousness is not blindly standing on a point of truth. And rejoicing when someone goes against it, or giving the full law of punishment to someone who's deviated from a certain plan. Joseph could have taken Mary and humiliated her in public. He could have said, You hurt me, now I'm hurting you. You ruined my family's name, I'm going to ruin yours. That's what often happens in divorces, right? But a major part of righteousness is compassion. He was a righteous man, and he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, so he decided to divorce her privately. Simple ceremony in a synagogue with a rabbi. Her parents, Mary didn't even have to be there, Joseph, maybe his parents, sign the document, the deed is done. She would be humiliated and so would he, but it wouldn't be public disgrace. Verse 20 says, After he considered what he was planning to do, and I'm sure that consideration, whatever time it was, was filled with anguish and anger, and unbelief and weeping and praying, wouldn't you? Your life. Broken, All your dreams dashed. Your heart ripped out of your soul. And as he's considering this, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. I don't know if it's Gabriel, the one who appeared to Mary earlier and told Mary that she was going to have a child of the Holy Ghost. But an angel comes to Joseph's rescue. He says, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. I like that. Verse 21. She will, you will, he will. She will give birth to a son. You will give him the name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. What a great description of the Christmas story. And so in verse 22, and whether this is actually more quoting from the angel or whether Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write commentary on the story, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before, chapter 7. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God with us. Several miracles I want to highlight this morning. The first one is the miracle of his birth. We're told in verse 20 that what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That is a miracle. That goes against the laws of nature. People say, well that couldn't happen. That's just not natural. Of course it's not natural. If you're a father and you have a daughter coming home to you and she says, I'm pregnant, Dad, but don't be worried. This is a holy thing. No man was involved. None of us would believe it. Nor did Mary's parents believe it, I'm sure, the first time they heard about it. It's a miracle, a miracle of miracles. The Bible tells us that uh, this virgin birth is actually a vital part of the entire story. It fulfills what was written before. And that the word that Matthew uses for virgin when he describes the situation in verse 23 can only mean a woman who is perfectly chaste, never having been with a man. So it is a miracle, clearly, that we're talking about here. It is the miracle of the virgin birth. I love the way J.O. Buswell describes it. This is a bit of a paraphrase, but he defines the virgin birth as a special miracle wrought by the third person of the Trinity, whereby the second person of the Trinity takes on a human, complete human nature, a genuine, complete human nature, and is born as a man without losing any of his divine nature according to the command of the first person of the Trinity, Almighty God. So the Trinity is involved, and the Holy Spirit is at work. When the angel told Mary that you're going to be with a child, she says, how can that be? I've never been with a man. Here's the explanation she received, Luke chapter 1. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you and the one who is born from you will be called the Holy Son of God. So this is a divine miracle without detailed explanation of genetics without detailed explanation from the biological process, except it has to be this way. You say, is it important? Absolutely it's important. If Jesus was born from the natural reproduction and the work of a a human father, he would have coursing through his veins the same defiled blood that you and I do. He would have passed from his father the same wicked, depraved nature. Because sin has passed down from man to man, from seed to seed, from every generation since Adam. But he had to be born into the human race, so he had to be born of a woman, but not born of a man. Now, there's a lot of people who don't believe that this is true. Even in Jesus' day, you read in John's Gospel someone saying, kind of in a snide remark to Jesus, we were not born of fornication hint, hint, like you were, yeah, word got out that he was probably the product of another young Jewish boy in, in Nazareth, or maybe one of the Roman soldiers who often took Jewish girls and, and did as they want to with them. Even some evangelicals, 12% in that Pew Research study, don't believe that this is a miracle. William Barclay, a Scottish commentator from a couple generations before, who gives us wonderful insight into the history, the background, the geography, the culture of the Jews, is often weak on theology. And he said this, writing on Matthew chapter 1, this passage tells us how Jesus was born by the action of the Holy Spirit. It tells us of what we call the virgin birth. Now this is a doctrine which presents us with many difficulties. And our church, the Church of Scotland, does not compel us to accept it in the literal and the physical sense. This is one of the doctrines on which the church says that we have full liberty to come to our own conclusion." I say, that's rubbish. That's wicked. That's demonic. That's not biblical. And the moment you begin to decide what actually happened and what didn't actually happen is the moment you place yourself above the Scripture, not under it. You say, What? Well, it's a miracle. Of course it is. In fact, wouldn't you expect the God of all power to do a few? And this is a great one. Again, it takes more faith not to believe in these things than it does to embrace the fact that God is going to do some amazing things to authenticate his message, to authenticate the person proclaiming his message, and to pour out upon mankind extraordinary grace. For every miracle in the Bible demonstrates at least three things wonder, power, and purpose. They're wonderful because they're awe-inspiring. They're powerful because it's outside the laws of human nature. Outside the, the normal course of human events. And it has significance and purpose because God does that. To attest his preacher, to attest his message, or to work about his plan. Often the miracles of God convey amazing grace. They're beneficial. Just like the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. It's a miracle. The Apostles' Creed in its earliest form is found around 290 A.D. It is not written; has not been written by the Apostles, but it is a writing, a summation of their teaching, and beautifully written. In the Apostles' Creed, which the church has quoted for centuries, it simply says in, what, 10 words? conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So well put. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. That's what I believe, because that's what the scripture declares. And it is significant. It is a miracle. To deny it, I have to deny the scripture. To deny it means that Jesus has the same human nature as any other person and I'm going to embrace the great miracle. Here's the second miracle that we read in Matthew chapter 1. It's the miracle of his divine character. That is, this one who is born with the name Jesus is also called Emmanuel. Verse 22 says, all of this took place. Remember that when historical events take place in our world, they all take place to accomplish the purpose of God. Sometimes God allows the wickedness of man to praise him. Sometimes God allows wicked hands to take a holy person like Jesus and crucify him on the cross, motivated by wicked thoughts, by envy and greed and jealousy. It's a wicked deed, but God planned it before the foundation of the world. And God allows these events to take place so that the scripture might be fulfilled. All this happened. So that Isaiah 7 would be fulfilled. Now if you read Isaiah 7, you may, maybe never saw the Messiah there. In fact, when that prophecy was given, I think it would have been difficult to see the Messiah in the prophecy. It had an immediate fulfillment of the birth of an unusual boy who would be a sign that God once again is going to come and defend his people. But now, 700 years later, Matthew says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this happened to fulfill what Isaiah predicted. Messiah would be born of a virgin. Even among Jewish writings, this concept of Messiah coming from the virgin birth is clearly stated. One of the most popular rabbis, uh, 10th century, Rabbi Rashi, who was an opponent of Christianity, Quoted from Isaiah chapter 7 and said Messiah is going to become born. He's going to come into this world as a man born of a virgin. And he looked at Isaiah 7, saw it there. Didn't even believe the New Testament. So here is this one who is born. Isaiah tells us it's an unusual birth. His name will be Emmanuel. And Matthew says the same thing. And he tells us what it means. God with us. Now, if you're listening to the words of Carol's song, the last song we heard, God with us, God for us, God in us. God with us means that God has come in human form. He's taken upon himself a human body. That's so glorious because there's no way our sins could ever be forgiven unless one like us dies for us. God is with us in human form. Listen to the great carols of Christmas. As Charles Wesley tells us once again, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleased as a man with men to dwell, Jesus is our Emmanuel. God is with us in human form. Secondly, God is for us. That is he's taking Our side if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ you are changing teams you're going from the kingdom of darkness and you're being placed into the kingdom of light by the way that is a miracle and when you become a Christian you change sides and now God is on your side I suppose the accurate way would be to say we are on his Except the apostle says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans chapter 8. You see, once you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are on God's side, and he is on yours. And nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. Now, we hear all the time people declaring, God's on my side. You know, a football game takes place. Interview one of the players. Do you think you're going to win this game? Yeah, we're going to win this game. God told me. I prayed. We're going to win this game. God's on our side. They lose 53 to nothing. That guy was a false prophet. Probably doesn't know God at all. It's just this mystical thing, you know, where you do a little praying and like a potion, like some incantation, maybe God will side with us and maybe we'll have good luck and good karma and we throw it all together and we pray and God's for us. No, he's not. God is only for you when you acknowledge that you're a sinner and trust Christ. God is for everyone in Christ. So he is for us, though. I mean, it's encouraging, isn't it? As a Christian, you're living in a difficult world. You're swimming upstream. All of culture stands against the word of God. Oh, there's some parts of the word that they'll believe, but there's a lot that they won't. And if you stand for this book, you go against culture, it's great to know God is for us. And that's what Christmas says. For us so much that he came to redeem us. There's a third miracle here, and as amazing as the first two, it's his saving work. Described in verse 21, he shall save his people from their sins. Wow. Did you know that your salvation is a miracle? Now, sometimes we'll describe a person, you know, we'll say, boy, if that person ever gets saved, it'd be a miracle as though every salvation isn't and sometimes we think well that person's really good or or some people even say you know i'm really a pretty good person Um, god won't have to do much to save me god would really be blessed to have me on his team i mean if so-and-so gets saved that's going to take a lot of work me just you know a little quick wash here and there and i'm fine no no it's a miracle that you are saved I, i mean you it's a miracle that you were safe. Have you ever said that to the Lord? Have you ever said, God, it's a miracle that you saved me because I'm so wicked? Oh, you don't think you are? <laughs> Go back and read the scripture about what sin is. Sin is thought as well as word and deed. It wouldn't take me long to find sin in your, your actions. It'd be a little easier to find sin in your words. And if I knew your thoughts, it wouldn't take long at all, right? You are wicked, you are sinful, so am I, and the wages of sin is death. Now, if you don't think you are, then you don't need a savior, you don't need a physician. Really, Christmas is not for you. I wouldn't even celebrate it. But you're a sinner, and you need to be saved. And when God saves anyone, it is a miracle. He shall save his people from their sins. The moment you believe in Jesus, all your sins are forgiven, never to be brought again to your attention. That's a miracle. He shall save his people. Who are his people? Not just the Jews, because he saves saves more than just the Jews. That portion of Scripture read earlier. The people who dwelled in darkness, they've seen a great light. The people of Zebulun and Naphtali, the region of the Gentiles, upon them a light has come. Who is the light? Messiah. And Jesus is going to live in that region of Galilee. And he's going to do his miracles in that region. And his message will go out to the, the, uh, the, the Gentiles as well. His people are those who put their faith and trust in him. And he shall save his people from their sins. That's a miracle. When I came to faith in Christ, one of the first Christian songs I learned was a song by John W. Peterson. Creation shows the power of God. There's glory all around and those who see must stand in awe for miracles abound. I believe in miracles I've seen a soul set free miraculous the change in one redeemed by Calvary I've seen a lily push its way up through the stubborn sod and I believe in miracles for I believe in God maybe it's not the greatest poetry <laughs> gotta find the word sod in there so it rhymes with God it is a miracle to see a plant grow, but it's a miracle to see a soul saved by grace, isn't it? And I'm looking at a bunch of miracles today, including myself, by the grace of God. That's what Christmas is all about. I believe in miracles because I believe in God. The best summary of Christmas, three words, God with Three miracles, his virgin birth, his divine character, and his saving work. Edward Castle put it this way, It is my sweetest comfort, Lord, and will forever be, to muse upon the gracious truth of thy humanity. O joy, there sitteth in our flesh upon a throne of light, one of a human mother born, yet in perfect Godhead bright. Forever God, forever man, my Jesus shall endure. And fixed on him, my hope remains eternally secure. Do you believe in miracles? Let's pray. O oh Lord, your love is a miracle. It inspires awe and wonder. It is demonstrated in a powerful way by the death of Christ on the cross. And there is great significance in the Christmas story because it is part of the gospel that declares your love, that defines what salvation is, and that tells us the lengths you've gone to to redeem your people from their sins. May we put the stable and the cross together this day and believe in the one who came as a babe, who came to die on a cross, who rose victorious over sin and death, over hell and the grave, and now bids every person in the world to put their faith and trust in him. They will be redeemed. God will be born in them. And that will be a miracle. In Jesus' name.